0: This, uh, this far in our sermon series, there's a group of people that haven't come off looking very good in the, in the first passages that we've studied. And that, that group of people, of course, would be uh, the religious leaders, those ones who confronted, who rejected, um, and sought to kill Jesus, ultimately. And so, you know, we think about what... Uh, what Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, he talks about our struggles, not against flesh and blood. It can be tough to read Matthew's gospel or the other gospels and not look at the religious leaders as the enemies, right? I mean, it, it, they're always opposed to Jesus. It, it can be easy to view them that way. And, and, and I, can't, I can't help but wonder if the, uh, the religious leaders themselves viewed themselves as enemies of Jesus, all right? And, and I, I also can't help but wonder, how did those religious leaders get to the point where they, they were just so fervently opposed to Jesus? What, what brought them to that place? And I think as we continue through Matthew's gospel, part of the answer to that question is given in Matthew chapter 23, where we'll be this morning. So, If we remember, in in, in just the last couple days of Jesus' life, the the religious leaders have taken issue with Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Uh, They took issue with his actions in the temple and his warning to them that we talked about last week that they were on the outside of the kingdom looking in. Now, they had tried to discredit Jesus as well by posing questions to him that they Thought would trap him, but they failed each time in doing so. And so then we get to Matthew chapter 23. Jesus sought to warn those in the crowd, those who were following him, about these religious leaders. And the main thing which Jesus honed in on in his warning is pride. Pride. The pride of the religious leaders, I think, is what led them to taking that place of opposition against Jesus. It's because of their pride that Jesus warned the crowds about them. So I I would encourage you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. It's page 828 in the Pew Bible, if you want to look there. We're going to start this morning by just reading the first uh, 12 verses of the chapter. Jesus gives a warning here right at the beginning about the kind of things which can lead to pride. So here we go, Matthew 23, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So the first thing Jesus did... And this message to the crowd was speak about the tendencies of the religious leaders. And he started by talking about their role sitting in Moses' seat. Now, there's debate about whether there was a literal physical chair in the Jewish synagogue at this point called Moses' seat. We're just not sure. But even if there's not a physical chair, the, the role represented by this term is quite clear. This was a mostly illiterate culture. Average person didn't have the ability to read, nor would they have had their own copy of the Old Testament, even if they could read. And so as a result, it was vital that God's words in the Old Testament be communicated to the people by reading them in the synagogue. And the religious leaders were typically the ones who took on the task of reading those words to the people, especially the words of Moses in the Pentateuch. So it's where we get this term, Moses' seat. So what Jesus is saying is, yeah, do what they tell you. Follow the truth of God, which they read, but don't do what they do. Follow the words, but not the actions. Even though the religious leaders were responsible for reading the words of God, they weren't so concerned with living out those words that they were reading, at least not in the way that they were intended to be lived out. They apparently liked their role, uh, their power that they had as they spoke these words of God, but they were lacking in their application of those words. Additionally, Jesus goes on and he says in verse 5 that the religious leaders did all their good works in a public manner to be seen by others, he um, talks about phylacteries. Those are, those are these boxes tied on a person's left arm or on their forehead that contained written pieces of scripture inside of them. Uh, the, the practice comes from Exodus chapter 13, where, where God told his people to remember his works, to, to have signs on their hand and between their eyes. That, that's where these boxes came from. Fringes, or tassels, were also worn at God's command in Numbers 15 to help the people remember that they were set apart to follow God. So the problem was that these reminders, these phylacteries and these, um, these fringes, they became more like status symbols that the religious leaders would wear. They utilized them in a public way in order to elevate themselves above others. So Jesus pointed that out, and then finally he says in verses 6 and 7 that that they loved the places and the titles of honor among the people. They they sought after the prestige that came with those positions of respect and honor. And so an easy way to remember it is that in verses 2 through 7, Jesus spoke about how the religious leaders valued power and publicity and prestige— Those three Ps power, publicity, and prestige. The major problem, however, is that power, publicity, and prestige can all lead to pride in a person's life. They don't have to lead to pride, but the temptation is there in a strong way. Those things increase the possibility of pride. In a person's life. And in the case of the religious leaders, those things had definitely led to pride in their life. So Jesus pointed that out. He gave a clear warning. And he went on then to, to speak to the crowd about how to keep away from pride. And, and we're gonna end our morning by coming back and focusing on, on those application points. But but for now, let's note those things power publicity and prestige which can lead to pride and the admonition that Jesus uh, from Jesus to avoid those things. Okay so so we get all of that in the first 12 verses of Matthew 23. In this discussion about pride we, we might ask the question is pride really such a bad thing? I, I mean uh, Aren't there worse things Jesus could be talking about here? He's only got a few days left before his arrest and crucifixion. Why spend it by pointing out the pride of the religious leaders? Seems like there would have been something more pressing that that he could have used his time on. Well, we're going to look at how the pride of the religious leaders played itself, itself out in their lives. Jesus goes on in the rest of Matthew 23 to speak seven woes against the religious leaders. And, and essentially, what Jesus is doing is he's grieving over the roles that the, the results of pride that, uh, that they had allowed to pervade their lives in all these different ways. So, the woe is, is, is grief that Jesus is proclaiming. Um, so, let's examine these seven woes. And then maybe we can decide whether or not pride is, uh, is such a bad thing based on the results. So picking it up in verse 13, Jesus says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he comes, a pro- when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So those first two woes, they go hand in hand, and they pick right up from our theme from last week. In those three parables that we talked about last week, Jesus told the religious leaders that even though they might have thought they were citizens of God's kingdom, they were they were not. They had failed to put their faith in Jesus, they had rejected Jesus, and so they were on the outside looking in. What we find out here in this passage is that not only had their pride kept them from entering into God's kingdom, but they were leading others away from it as well. They were making it so that others would not go in. Even those who truly longed to enter the kingdom were not going in because they were following the prideful example of the religious leaders. So that's the first woe, and then the second is is really the opposite side of the same coin. The the religious leaders were indeed making proselytes, converts, but instead of making converts for Jesus, they were making people into children of hell, is how Jesus (laughs) described it. So they were not only leading people away from God's kingdom, but they were also leading people toward eternal punishment, and turmoil. And the sad irony is that these religious leaders did indeed hold positions of influence among the people. They were leaders whom people were following. But as prideful leaders, they were leading people away from God, not toward him. And so that, that's what Jesus grieves over. He says, woe to you. And, 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 and let's not forget, right? Every indication is that Jesus is speaking about the scribes and Pharisees, but speaking to his followers. So not totally sure if the scribes and Pharisees were present as Jesus spoke these words, but we know they're about them to his followers. These first two woes ought to cause his followers to pause, for a moment. Why is pride such a bad thing? Well, for starters, it can result in us leading people away from God. Now, when it comes to each person's acceptance or rejection of Jesus, each person will take full responsibility for their own choice. No one's going to stand before God and be able to point the finger of blame at somebody else for why they Rejected Jesus. And, and no one will be able to put another person on their back and carry them into God's kingdom either. It, it, it doesn't work that way. The Bible's quite clear on that. But that being said, the Bible is also clear that we'll give an account for our influence upon others. James chapter 3, verse 1 talks about teachers being judged more strictly. Not, I'm not talking school teachers really, but, but teachers of the Bible, teachers of God. Uh, Hebrews 13, verse 17, talks about leaders giving an account of their watch over the souls of others. God spoke to Ezekiel, told him that, that Ezekiel, if you don't pronounce the, the words of warning that I'm giving to you to give to the people, the people are still going to be judged based upon their own iniquities, but their blood will be required at your hand, Ezekiel. So there, there's there's responsibility there. It, it matters if in my pride I lead People away from God. And so we ought to ask ourselves if we are guilty of prideful leading. When I, when I pridefully lean on my own strength instead of God's, am I leading others away from his kingdom? When I, when I pridefully withhold forgiveness or, or, or refuse to seek forgiveness, am I, am I leading others away from God's kingdom? When I pridefully place my own desires above all else, am I, am I leading others away from God's kingdom? These are questions that, that we ought to ask ourselves. J- Jesus desires that me and you and all his followers live in the humility that will lead people toward his kingdom, not away from it. So we, we see that in, in these first two woes. Jesus said the religious leaders have pride, and because of it, they're leading people away from God's kingdom. The next two woes talk about, not the leading of the religious leaders, but their worship. Their pride was affecting their worship. So look with me at verse 16. Jesus again says, "'Woe to you, blind guides, who say, "'If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it, and whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes, and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So the third and the fourth woes focus on worship and, and specifically vowing and tithing. Those were two things that were uh, central components of Jewish worship. Leviticus chapter 27 is a biblical text where we see God talking about both of those things as it pertains to worship. So a, a vow was often made to God out of a heart of devotion. Sometimes the vow was um, uh, maybe a type of bargain with God. It it could be something like that. So for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, when Hannah's praying for a son, she vows to give him to the Lord all the days of his life. She makes that kind of a vow out of her devotion. Sometimes a vow is just a display of sincerity. For example, David vowed in Psalm 132 to not go home or lay down in his bed or even sleep until the ark of God was given a house. Now, earlier in Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had already spoken on the lack of need for a vow. Simply being a person of integrity who lived out his or her words was enough But back in the Old Testament, vows were allowed so long as they were carried out. I mean, God basically said in Deuteronomy 23, it's fine not to vow. That's fine. But if you do, you're guilty of sin if you don't carry it out. Now, what the religious leaders were doing in Jesus' day is they were arguing about all the minute details regarding a vow. So in essence, they were they were seeking loopholes that would allow them to publicly make impressive vows, but then not have to carry them out based on this technicality, right? So, so for example, you might say, well, I, I swear upon this altar that I will fast for the next 20 days, but then they would turn around later in private and say, well, the altar isn't really important. Now, if I had sweared by the goat sacrificed on the altar, well, that would have been different. But I only sweared by the altar, so that doesn't really count. Right? And so you can see what they're doing there. And Jesus says, you guys are blind. you are blind. Their pride was leading them to worship God in very empty ways, making vows that they knew were impressive, but they had no intention of keeping them whatsoever. Jesus said, you're blind. And, and, and similarly with their tithing, Le, 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 Leviticus 27 talks about how all crops and animals ought to, there ought to be a tithe given to the Lord. 10% of each harvest or each birthing season was given to God. And, and it obviously applied to things like barley and wheat and grapes and you know all the typical crops, but, but what about the tiniest things grown like mint and dill? And cumin, things that aren't even a main food, but are, are just a seasoning that you put on food. And, and rabbis debated about what to do in that matter. Should, if, you, if you're growing uh, mint in your garden, should you, should you tithe on that little bit of mint that you? And, and they would go back and forth. The religious leaders, in their pride, they desired to appear quite worshipful, and so, of course, they're going to tithe on those tiny things, right? I mean, that's how you look good when you, when you bring your tithe. It's on everything, not just the main stuff. Well, Jesus calls out to them because they put all this time and effort into tithing these little spices, but they were forgetting the main components of the law. He said justice, mercy, faithfulness. I was trying to think of what, what would this look like? I mean, imagine I'm, I'm, I'm walking down the sidewalk in a city, and... And I find a dime on the sidewalk, and I become obsessed with tithing on that dime that I have just found. And that's what, I, that's what I focus on. And I completely ignore the immigrant that I just passed, who's confused and lost as they look for where they're trying to go. I mean, that's what Jesus is talking about. You're so concerned about this little thing, tithing on a dime, that you miss an opportunity to show mercy and justice to people. Jesus goes on. He says that the the religious leaders are so worried about a gnat, the smallest unclean animal, right? They didn't want to ingest a gnat as they drank, and so they were so concerned about it. But Jesus says, you're swallowing an entire camel, which was the biggest of unclean animals. He said, you're so focused on the little that you're not even paying attention to this huge thing that you're missing. In their prideful forms of worship, they weren't truly worshiping God at all. And Jesus was grieved by them. Their their seemingly impressive displays of devotion to God were nothing but hollow actions with no value. And pride can lead us to that kind of a place. Might be so concerned about not being late for church that, that we ignore the attitude with which we treat those in our household. Right? And I say that for my own benefit first before anybody else. I mean, really. Uh, as a church, we might be, be so worried about our worship services looking good and just right that we ignore those in our community who are hurt or, or struggling. Right? I mean, this, this is the kind of stuff Jesus is talking about here. Rather than desiring impressive displays of worship, we ought to humbly come before God in genuine obedience in the areas of justice, faithfulness, mercy. That's what Jesus is pointing out here with the religious leaders. So those are four woes. The next two, after talking about prideful leading, prideful worshiping, he goes on to talk about prideful living of the religious leaders. So verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed, self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So these are both pictures of ignoring the filth on the inside and, and instead just focusing on the apparent beauty on the outside. Pride leads us to focus on appearances rather than purity. I mean, if I'm pure on the inside... Who's really going to notice that, right? That that seems like a lot of effort for little to no recognition if I'm pure on the inside. But if I'm pure on the outside, if I look good on the outside, well, people will notice that, right? Or or we tend to think this way. Pride can lead us to that spot, being much more concerned with how people view our outside than how God views our inside. Now, Now, Inside and outside both matter, right? I'm not trying to say one matters and the other doesn't. Jesus said that cleaning the inside would, by extension, clean the outside. Inward purity brought about through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives will naturally impact our outward actions. But do I spend more time getting outwardly ready for church on Sunday than I spend on inward purity the rest of the week? That might be a question that, can, that we can ask ourselves. Am I a different person outside the four walls of my house than when I'm inside, either alone or, or with my family? <clears throat> this inside versus outside, it, it's not when we are prideful, but when we are humble that our inside is washed clean by God's work. Yesterday, I had a a little bit of stuff starting here, so I'm going to take a preemptive cough drop because I got one, Ken. (laughs) We all know how that worked out last time. So, see if I can be on the ball. So, that's, that's six of the first seven woes. Finally, for today, the last woe that Jesus spoke was one of prideful denial. So, go ahead, look with me. Verse 29. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." So the Jewish people had this history of ignoring and mistreating the prophets that God sent to them. Because the prophets prophets often spoke difficult words of warning and of judgment, they were sometimes beaten, other times killed by their fellow Jews. The religious leaders in Jesus' day would have been connected, connected by blood to those past Jews. That those past generations of Israelites, yet they, they pridefully assumed that they were above those ancestors who mistreated the prophets that came. And in order to display, to display this, they would build these elaborate monuments and tombs to honor the prophets, some of which you can still see today in Jerusalem. And if we were alive then, the, you know, they would brag, we wouldn't have done such a horrible thing like, like those ancestors did. We, we wouldn't have done that. And yet, Jesus told them, they are indeed the murderous sons of those ancestors. Their lineage would be confirmed by the fact that they would ultimately, in just days from when he said this, kill the prophet of all prophets, the wise man of all wise men, the the Messiah himself. So perhaps we're picking up on the theme this morning, their pride blinded them. To the very malice that was in their hearts that was about to be fully unleashed upon Jesus in the next few days. They denied their current situation, pridefully assuming that they were different from all those who came before them. Pride leads us to that way of thinking, doesn't it? I know this happened to that person, but it won't happen to me. I'm not like them. That's a prideful statement. Their anger is probably based in sin, but my anger, it's more of a righteous anger, right? And pride can, can lead us to a spot like that. Pride leads us to the place where we think we are above someone else. It causes us to deny the truth about ourselves. Humility, on the other hand, opens our eyes to the reality of things. So those are the seven woes. Seven things Jesus was grieving about when he looked at the religious leaders. The pride that they harbored in their hearts led them to that place where Jesus grieved over them. But again, we have to remember, these words from Jesus were spoken to his followers. right? And I think that's why this final woe, the seventh one, kind of contextualizes the whole thing. Perhaps Jesus' followers were tempted to pridefully assume that they weren't like the religious leaders. Yeah, Jesus, I see why you're coming down on them, but we're not quite like that, right? And if that's what they assumed, then they would have completely missed the message that Jesus had just spoken. And because we read this today as followers of Jesus... We ought to ask ourselves, too. We might be tempted to pridefully assume that we aren't like those religious leaders. If that's what we think, then we probably ought to read Matthew 23 over and over again until until our pride has nowhere to run and hide. I I am no less susceptible to pride than the religious leaders or the followers of Jesus who heard him speak these words the first time. I'm no less susceptible. I need this warning as much as anyone Pride has this sneaky, but it, it, it's sneaky, but it's lethal in how it works because it, it, it can lodge itself in our souls and blind us to its presence. It's one of the worst things about it. Is we don't even know that it's there at times. So we need to keep away from pride. I mean, that's the warning from all of this. We need the treatment that will both expel pride and then keep it away. And Jesus knows this, and I think that's why he's already spoken plenty about how in the power of the Holy Spirit we can foster humility rather than pride. And so I'm gonna give three practical actions that Jesus has already spoken about in Matthew's Gospel that will, that will choke out pride and also provide fertile soil for humility to grow. So the first thing, as, as Jesus stated at the very beginning of his public ministry, we must repent. And in order to repent of sins, we must acknowledge our sins and agree with the verdict of God that our sins are a rebellion against him. That, that regular repentance in our lives will drive us to that place of Humility. So Jesus has spoken about that already. He spoke in the Sermon on the Mount about how we ought to do our good deeds in secret. You know, those deeds are created and they're empowered by the Holy Spirit, but when we focus upon making them known publicly, pride can creep in, right? So saw that with the religious leaders. So doing those things in secret, the, the, the giving, the praying, the fasting that Jesus talked about there, it will cultivate humility. It'll only be God. Who knows about those things? And if we try to stand before God and brag about those good deeds, I I think we'll find little room to become prideful if we attempt to do that. So doing our good deeds in secret is a way to choke out pride, foster humility. And then finally, we ought to serve and so humble ourselves before God and others. Jesus already stated that in chapter 20, that we ought to emulate him by by serving, not being served. And then he emphasizes it again here in chapter 23, verses 11 and 12. He says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. I can't help but wonder if there's a double meaning to that verse. I think Jesus is stating that that he's stating to the crowd, like like the greatest among you here crowd is going to be the one that, that serves, the one who most humbly serves. I think that's part of what he's saying. At the same time, who was the greatest one standing there that day? Jesus, right? I mean, he was the greatest one standing there. And he was about to take the absolute lowest place as he hung upon the cross. So I think Jesus is giving a command to follow, but also teaching about himself as he makes that statement. The greatest among you will be your servant. And our Savior is great, the greatest, in fact. But even so, he humbled himself to serve us. As the text unfolds, we're just days away from seeing that played out. Jesus knew that the prideful path of the religious leaders was one destined to destruction. He knew that. I think that's why he's so sorrowful over their situation. That's why he's grieving and giving these woes. But Jesus also knew that the humble path he was walking was one destined for victory. That's why he walked it, and that's why he called his followers to walk that humble path as well. Jesus desires humility. He desires to increase humility within, within me, within you, to his glory and to our benefit, ultimately. And, and, and the power of the Holy Spirit, in that power, we can walk in repentance, we can do good works in secret, and we can serve rather than be served. He, he, he empowers us, he equips us, makes us able to do those things. As we do it, I'm confident that pride will struggle to find places to take root within us. Those things are just anti-pride. That's just how it works. And I'm confident that in its place, humility will grow and become a great source of blessing. Source of blessing to ourselves, to others, and to our great God who first humbly served us. So is pride such a big deal? Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. You know, one of, one of my, there's a lot of things I like about being a pastor, but one of the things that I really enjoy is just when God works things together in his sovereignty and in his providence. And I don't, I don't know how much you've been, Watching or keeping tabs on what's what's been going on down at Asbury in the last ten or eleven days, whatever it's on now, but and, and, and whether the term is revival or outpouring or uh, the term doesn't necessarily matter what God is doing there as you read descriptions and and firsthand accounts of just the incredible incredible work that 's taking place you, you I, I really have not found anyone that has not mentioned repentance, right? Humble repentance. It, it, I mean, we have in the news, on our social media feeds, a, a vivid picture of humility and, and what God can do when we are humble before him, especially in terms of, of repentance, and that, that's the opposite of, of pride that, that is uh, described here for us. And, you know, in God's continued providence in our Fight Club chapter this week, wouldn't you know it, it's all about, about viewing sin as God does, being repentant of that. Yeah, I'm telling you, this is why I really enjoy being a pastor, seeing him work all those things together. And here we are this morning. I mean, I don't know how many weeks or months ago I'd planned to be in Matthew 23 this morning, but here we are. And it's God confronting us through these words about being humble rather than prideful. So I, I would just, man, I, I would encourage us to, to take that seriously. Not just say, yeah, I know pride's bad. Okay. But man, we are called to be humble people. It stands out in the world. It, it, it displays his glory in a way that pride never will. And it's something that can be quite powerful when God works through it. It's so great that we get to sing about him being king earlier this morning. If he's the king, guess who's not? (laughs) All of us, right? And so we can humbly come before him and praise him for the king that he is. Let's, Let's stand together. We can thank Jesus, that he humbly served us, and we can come before his throne and ask him to increase that humility within us. And so let's do that. Jesus, you you are the greatest among us, and and you are our servant. I have no logical reason why you should serve me in a lot of ways that doesn't make any sense. But that's, that's you. You are humble, and you serve, and you gave of yourself completely. Not just for me, but for all of us. So God, may that may that truth, may that love and reality just go deep down within us. And may it foster humility from us. May it weed out the pride that, that we can be tempted to to allow to take root and, and, and help us to be humble. God, you are, you are an incredible God. And we give you praise for that this morning. My prayer is that, that you would not look at me or any of us and have to shake your head and grieve and, and pronounce woes because of pride that has infiltrated our lives. We know it can be painful to root out pride. But would you do that? Would you do that in me? Would you do that in all of us here? That we would humbly serve. God, we thank you. We love you so much. We want to continue to praise you now. Because you are most worthy. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.